and welcome to the Simungos podcast. This is episode 66 and today's guest is Nick Caputo from New York City. So Nick gave a talk for the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine on oxygenation and optimization. We split it into two parts and you can listen to the first part on this episode today, but both parts are available to watch for free at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Now, just before we jump into the lecture, we got Nick on a call to discuss his top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm here with Nick Caputo, who gave a wonderful talk for our Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine series on oxygenation and optimization. And we're going to play that now in this podcast or part one of a two parts uh, for that. And also you'll be able to watch the two parts uh, on a special St. Mungo's page that we have uh, on the Continuous website. But Nick has very kindly joined me to answer some other questions. So Nick, before we get into that, please just... Give our listeners just a little background. Who are you? Where you are? What's your professional background? And if you feel up to it, perhaps an interesting fact about yourself. Sure. So uh, my name's Nick. I am an emergency physician. I work uh, primarily at uh, New York City Health and Hospitals, Lincoln in the South Bronx. Uh, we are the busiest single-site emergency department in the United States. Uh, I'm the associate chief of emergency medicine there. Um, I also work uh, at uh, Columbia Presbyterian NYP. And I do concierge medicine on the side. Um, an interesting fact about me is I just got back from deployment a few months ago. Uh, I was over in Somalia and Mogadishu with um, the special forces, uh, in particular the Navy SEALs. It was quite the adventure. Uh, and I'm glad to be back from that. Wow, that is quite a varied uh, background. But look, thank you very much. And you're a busy guy. And I really, really appreciate you joining us. So the purpose of this, Nick, was just before we play your talk, we were asking our guests to give their top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians. So would you mind giving us yours? Sure, absolutely. For me, this was this was easy to come up with because it's something that I've, I've really thought about over the years. Um, and so for me, the number one thing is to admit when you don't know what's going on. The patients I find that I have dealt with find that reassuring. When you walk in the room and you're like, you know, I really don't know what's going on with you, but we're going to figure it out. We might not figure it out today, but if you're not safe to go home, we're going to get you admitted to the hospital and we'll figure it out over the next few days. Um, but just to let them know that you're not giving them uh, a, a false sense of reassurance. Like if you don't know, you don't know. You know, number two would be uh, to stay open-minded even when you do think you know what's going on, right? So if you're like, hey, my pretest probability is 85% this person has a PE, keep in the back of your mind that it may not be a PE or it may be a PE, but they could also have something else because early closure um, is, uh, is a big part of medical errors, right? Um, another thing, number three, I'd like to, to really emphasize is do not accept conventional wisdom, challenge it. And I like to challenge it through patient encounters. So when patients ask me questions about why I'm treating them or why I'm, I'm running a specific test, um, if I don't know the answer, I like to go and, and look it up and see, is this truly evidence-based or is this just something that we extrapolated from another specialty or something that we've just been doing for the last 40 or 50 years, um, you know, out of conventional wisdom? Um, and, and in that way, you can kind of, you know, create your own research questions and, and, and answer those 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 uh, sort of queries that come up on a shift to shift basis that probably a lot of other ER docs face too. You know, an example of that for me was um, 
doing app box and people doing app box and you know where was the the real true evidence base behind that um and you know the endow trial that that we did um comparing app box versus usual care came out of those you know general patient interactions where a resident would say like you know let's put the patient on app box well why do you want to do that where's the evidence let's talk about it right um and it's physiologically grounded in in, in some great evidence but clinically you know, there's some controversy there. And just to um, clarify, Nick, what is Apox? Just to clarify, in case people don't know. Sure. Apneic oxygenation. Um, number four um, is collaborate with consultants. I have found that consultants that I've been able to collaborate with, and this is usually, I, I try to do it with the research because I like doing research, but also, you know, if there are committees that in the hospital I can join, if I get to know them outside of the ED, it makes for a much smoother and friendlier request when I do consult them to the ED. Um, and they know oh, Nick's, Nick's consulting me, then, you know, obviously there's, there's something going on, right? As opposed to just consulting some random person that you don't really know. If you take the time to get to know your, your consultants and collaborate with them and, and formulate a, a nice relationship that that's based either academically or just, you know, clinically through those, those committees, um, it makes for a much more enjoyable uh, experience when you are working with them. And then finally, I think, you know, this was a hard one for me to, to learn, um, but have patience with the learners. So with your residents, with your interns, um, because they can teach you even when you think you're teaching them. Um, this was something I actually learned um, in my days at, at Columbia Presbyterian. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I decided to, to take a part-time job there was because when I graduated residency, I felt like there were things that I wasn't really exposed to that I thought I needed to know a little bit more how to approach in terms of diagnostics and treatments, things like oncologic emergencies, transplant emergencies, um, more cutting edge uh, surgical procedures that, you know, tend to bounce back to, to the ER. You know, the, these, these patients will have these procedures done at places like Columbia or Cornell or NYU, but if they're living in the Bronx, you know, they don't take the trip down to Manhattan to go back to those doctors. They call 911 and they get brought to, to Lincoln and they say, I had this procedure done. And you're like, I'm, you're Googling it because you're like, I've never heard of this. So, you know, talking to, to residents who are off service and, and fellows and really listening to them and having patience with them, um, you can learn a lot from them as well. And, and even your own residents within your own specialty. So I think for me, those are the the top five uh, bits of advice I would give to to people in emergency medicine. Fantastic tips. Now let's just jump right into the lecture itself. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining in. Um, my name is uh, Nicholas Caputo. I'm an ER doctor uh, out of South Bronx, New York, and uh, I'm going to be talking on a topic that's really uh, important, uh, I think, not only uh, to our patients, um, but really should be important to you as well and uh, in that it's always good to understand really to the physiologic point of the interventions that we perform within the emergency department every day that impact our patients. And what we'll be talking about today is pre-oxygenation, what I like to call optimization and oxygenation um, within the emergency department um, as it relates to rapid sequence intubation. And I'd like to disclose no conflicts of interest. The only thing we're interested here is safe and evidence-based airway medicine. So really this question boils down to what is rapid sequence intubation? 
And how does uh, pre-oxygenation, oxygenation, and optimization fit into this? So in order to answer this question of rapid sequence intubation and what it is, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the history, our approach to intubation, when to do it, why to do it, how to do it, a little bit of troubleshooting, and then we'll summarize uh, what we've learned. Okay, so think of any case you've had in which the patient ultimately required uh, securement of that airway. And I would, uh, I would guess that it probably ended up with, with this, you know, direct laryngoscopy, video laryngoscopy as your main uh, armamentarium uh, for securing that airway. Um, and less so like this with more advanced airway techniques and those patients that are more tenuous um, and that really require a little bit more thought process on your, on your behalf um, and a little bit more technical skill in order to secure that airway in a safe manner for the patient. Now, when we do these more advanced airway techniques like I'm doing here in the emergency department, we tend to gather crowds around us. And I think the goal of this, uh, of this study is you know, to get every provider comfortable with uh, very tenuous and sick patients who may be rapidly desaturating or you can't really oxygenate very well prior to your RSI that, you know, if you don't have the advanced skills uh, to do something like an awake bronchoscopic intubation, that putting them uh, through rapid sequence intubation, direct laryngoscopy, video laryngoscopy, we do it in the safest possible manner. So in order to do that, we have to understand what RSI is. And RSI really was developed back in the 50s uh, by two anesthetists in, in England. And it was in response to a, an alarming number of deaths that were due to regurgitation and vomiting um, during uh, elective operative procedures. And uh, so what these two anesthetists developed was a manner in which you would paralyze the patient in order to optimize your view uh, and to, uh, to really make it much quicker for you to secure the airway. And the hopes of really preventing uh, this regurgitation and aspiration that would lead to death. One of the key things they actually did was they used the semi-fowler position, which seemed to have been lost uh, over the years um, and is now returning to, uh, to airway management. So this brings up a question of how come things changed over time? So original RSI and RSI is performed, you know, really in the operating room and by anesthetists who come to the, the ED uh, to help with airway management was oxygenation before induction, cricoid pressure, and then ventilation prior to intubation. In the 70s, this was modified um, in the emergency department by our new uh, and, and aspiring, especially of emergency medicine, to pre-oxygenation, induction, and intubation. Now, you know, there are nuanced differences between the two, um, especially that ventilation prior to intubation um, that, that uh, help differentiate the two RSI versus modified RSI. But the linchpin here is oxygenation. And this is really what it all comes down to. And what should be at the forefront of your mind when you're making that decision to intubate a patient is how are they oxygenating? If it's not optimally, how do I optimize their oxygenation so that when I do paralyze them, I'm making it as safe as possible. And I can't stress this enough because as an emergency physician, you know, what I tell my, my residents and, and my junior faculty is that in the emergency department, there are really three main procedures that we do um, that are uh, both fairly common and fairly invasive. And in order of frequency, it's going to be intubation, central lines, and chest tubes. Now, um, I've never seen anybody die from a chest tube insertion. I've never seen anybody die of a central line insertion, but I have seen patients die 
during RSI, during intubation. And that's why I focus so much on, you know, how do we prevent those poor outcomes by thinking about oxygenation um, as we are intubating our patients. So let's talk about that approach to intubation and how we can do it in a safe manner, right? You really want to ask yourself when and why to intubate versus when and why not to intubate. So what about that when and why? It's easy. The patient needs it, right? Your patient has a type 1 respiratory failure uh, or type 2 respiratory failure, and they need oxygenation uh, support that is not being met by their supplemental O2, whether it's nasal cannula or non-rebreather, or uh, they're on that non-rebreather and they're still in that type 1 respiratory failure, or they're in that type 2 ventilatory respiratory failure and they're failing BiPAP, right? When and why not to intubate them? You want to do it or it's easier. You know, this is seen a lot in the emergency department, and especially when consultants come down, the ICU will come down and say, hey, just intubate the patient. You know, my opinion is it's never just intubating the patient. Like, really, let's take into consideration whether or not this patient needs to be intubated because, you know, you're committing that patient to an immense amount of resources when you do make the decision to intubate, and you're also putting them at a high risk. Um, and though that high risk um, might not occur often, it does occur, and you need to take that into consideration. So here's some questions to guide you in terms of whether or not to pull that trigger to intubate. Is there failure of airway maintenance or protection? Is there failure of oxygenation or ventilation? So that type one, type two respiratory failure that we were talking about, or is there an anticipated need for intubation? Now, I generally tend not to use this, uh, this third question because I can anticipate a need for intubation in any patient that walks through the door. So I, I try to let the first two questions help guide my my decision to intubate. And I try to do it in a manner that uh, distinguishes emergent intubation versus urgent intubation. The vast majority of what we do in the emergency department is going to be urgent, right? For me, emergent intubations are going to be those cases where it's a cardiac arrest, traumatic arrest, um, where you can actually do a dry without the medications um, because you need to either put an LMA in or you need to secure that airway um, in order to proceed with the resuscitation. All others, in my mind, are urgent. And that's an important distinction to make because what that does is that gets you in the, in the mind frame that you have time. You have time in an urgent situation to think. You have time to prepare. You have time to optimize the patient. In an emergent situation, you don't have that time, but time's taken away from you. Um, and so you just have to act. Um, on the military side, in special ops, we say, we just send it, right? So just sending it is, is that emergent side um, that urgent side is, all right, let's, let's think about this a little bit. Let's, let's optimize our conditions before we, we pull the trigger and, and uh, push those paralytics. And it's important to understand the human factors side of it, that emergent versus urgent side of it, because there is evidence out there that shows that when we are, as emergency physicians, performing these, these really high-risk, uh, highly invasive procedures that we lose situational awareness. This was a study we done, we did uh, back in 2016, looking at physician uh, perception to time of intubation and time to desaturation um, in the emergency department. And what we found was that, you know, physicians really lose uh, our situational awareness when we're trying to intubate a patient. Um, so what does that mean? It basically means our, 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 we have this sort of like time dilation. So we go through the procedure we intubate the patient and immediately post-procedure, I say, hey, you know, great job intubating that patient. How long do you think it took you? Oh, I nailed it. I did it in 20 seconds when in actuality it took you a minute and 20 seconds. Or did the patient desaturate at all? 
No, they didn't desaturate at all. And actually they did desaturate. And that's with verbal cues coming from nursing. Um, so we, we tend to tunnel vision, put the blinders on when we're trying to perform these, these tasks. So it's, it's very important to understand that human factors do uh, play a big role in uh, our, our procedural abilities, um, especially in these high-risk procedures. And that's why it's important to keep at the front of your mind, you know, what is going to cause this patient to have a poor outcome? Well, desaturation will, um, deoxygenation will. And that's why this is a really important topic to me. Some of these human factors can be offset by the use of checklists. This is a, an example of checklist that we use at, at Lincoln for every patient. Um, and, and really, if, if you take a look at it, the first thing we, we write down is time of decision to intubate. Okay. Um, and at that point, we place the patient on uh, entitled CO2, entitled O2, and we start oxygenating them. Um, because we, we kind of know that once you make that decision to intubate, you probably have a good five to 10 to even longer than that minutes to, uh, before you're going to be intubating the patient. So all of that time should be spent with the patient on as high of an FiO2 of oxygen as possible in order to increase their alveolar concentration and arterial concentration of oxygen. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So now we've gotten through, all right, we're making the decision in debate. Um, we have our checklist out. Oxygenation is at the forefront of our mind. Let's talk about how to intubate um, and what are the steps necessary in order to go through it uh, safely. So you want to risk stratify these patients. And so you want to risk stratify them by comorbid state and pathology. Um, so the best way I, I tend to do that is through the ASA rating. Um, try to come up with <clears throat> what is their risk of being exposed to RSI um, or anesthetic medications um, in terms of their baseline comorbid state and pathology. And once I've done that and I've made my medication selection and my dosage, then I go on to their patient anatomy and I risk stratify by um, how technically difficult is this going to be? So, you know, the comorbid state, the pathology state is going to tell you whether or not the patient is physiologically difficult airway, right? The an anatomical state is going to tell you whether or not they're uh, technically or anatomically difficult. And so we use the classic Malampati score um, to, to help us anticipate our equipment selection. Once we have both of these mentally, we're ready to intubate. So we've made our medication selection and uh, our dosing. Um, we've uh, selected our, our equipment and anticipated what we're going to need to intubate. So now we're ready to go. So once that's uh, all <clears throat> confirmed mentally, what you want to do is you want to prepare the patient for intubation. It's really more preparing yourself. So you have your checklist out. You want to pre-treat, prep the patient, position the patient. And really the linchpin here is pre-oxygenate the patient. So in prepping, pre-treating the patient, if you're going to be using fentanyl or lidocaine or push-dose pressors, you want to have those drawn up. Um, positioning, you want to have that good flex tension position going on. And really, pre-oxygenation is the key here. You know, conventionally, we've been told 100% FiO2 for at least three minutes um, or eight to 12 vital capacity breaths. Now, this is something we're going to get into in a moment because this is the standard and this evidence has come out of the operating room um, from our anesthesia colleagues. And it's a little bit harder to do in the emergency department, as we'll see. Um, when we get down to pre-oxygenation and oxygenation, I think every emergency physician needs to read these seminal papers um, from colleagues and friends, uh, Scott Weingart and Rich Levitan out of Annals, 
um, and John Sackles uh, out of uh, academic emergency medicine. Um, these are two really good uh, reviews on how to uh, pre-oxygenate prevent desaturation while performing RSI and how to maintain oxygenation during RSI. They get into the, the nitpicky stuff that you know most of us find a little too boring, but it's really important for us to understand because as, you, as you'll see, um, with the new evidence coming out, we haven't really been doing our due diligence and performing our tasks to the standard that we should be. So Nick, thank you again, both for the wonderful talk and also um, the wonderful pearls of wisdom. Just one last thing before we go, we ask the same question of all our guests, and that is, if I could bring you back on my time machine to kind of meet your junior self just starting your career, what one piece of advice would you give them, given everything that you've gained in your uh, kind of experience so far, what would you tell them? Yeah, absolutely. I would tell junior Nick, don't change a decision you've made because you've landed in a pretty good place and it's only getting better from here. So, you know, stick with those gut decisions that you've made over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years and it'll take you to the place that you want to be. Wonderful advice. Thank you very much, Nick. Really delighted you could join us. Thank you. No, thank you. So many, many thanks again to Nick for those wonderful pearls of wisdom, plus the wonderful talk itself. Remember, you can watch both parts of this uh, lecture at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Until next time, please take care. <laughs>